This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Ralph Scamadella, and he is the head chef and partner at Tao Group, uh, which is one of the largest restaurant groups in the United States. Uh, they have some immense restaurants that are in the top 10 in terms of total revenue. We've previously spoken to several other restaurateurs, but this is the first time we've had a conversation with someone who is in the restaurant business at this sort of level in terms of being not just national but global. They have restaurants in Australia and Singapore and elsewhere. If you are at all a foodie, if you're interested in the food service industry, if you're interested in understanding what makes certain restaurants successful and others not so successful, you are going to really enjoy this conversation. With no further ado, my conversation with Ralph Scamadella. My special guest this week is Ralph Scamadella. He is a chef and partner with the Tao Group, one of the most successful restaurant and nightclub companies in the United States. The Tao Group operates in New York City, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Sydney, and they run three of the top 10 grossing restaurants in the United States, including the single biggest grossing independent restaurant, Tao Asian Bistro in Las Vegas, which in 2016 did over $42.5 million in revenue. Scamadello oversees all of the chefs and concepts in New York, Las Vegas, L.A., uh, pretty much, you probably have eaten his food and not even known it. Uh, and last year, Madison Square Garden purchased a controlling interest in Tao Group. Ralph Scamadello, welcome back to Bloomberg. Oh, thank you very much, Barry. Pleasure to be here. So I've been, that intro, I should ask for a raise. More <laughs> you <money>. definitely <laughs> should. So I've been looking forward to this conversation. I'm a little bit of a foodie and have eaten in some of your restaurants, but I want to go back really to the beginning, how did you get interested in cooking? Is this something that you were passionate when you were younger, or did you just kind of develop it later in life? Uh, I grew up in an Italian-American home, so my parents were always, my father worked, my mother was always home cooking, and I got a job working in a restaurant when I was very young, and a chef in that restaurant took a liking to me and just would help, let me help out in the kitchen while I was doing busboy work, or I was doing waiter work, and he encouraged me to go to school for it and really saw that I had a knack for it, and he really guided me to go to New York City Community College. And then uh, when I graduated high school, I went to Grady High School in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. It's a tech vocational school. I wanted to be an electrical, electrician, electrical engineer. I wasn't sure, but when I, he encouraged me to go to New York City Hotel and Restaurant. And when I graduated high school, his good friend of his was the chef at the Plaza Hotel in Manhattan, and he got me a job working at the Plaza Hotel. So it was like from being in a small restaurant in Brooklyn to the biggest hotel pretty much in New York or anywhere in America was unbelievable. So do you find most of uh, modern chefs today, are they going to restaurant schools like Culinary Institute or elsewhere, 
or are they a combination of self-taught or mentored along the way? Where, where are most of our? I think most of them go to school, mm-hmm. but there, you know, it's not. There's no one. That's the one thing that's great about the restaurant business now. Mm-hmm. There is no one path to success, right? When I was growing up, and you wanted to be a, a chef, and you wanted to be an accomplished chef, you had to do your internship, and then you had to do. You had to be a comey in a French restaurant. You had to work for a big hotel. You had to work for a great chef. And you had to go through this long, arduous path. Now you could develop the greatest hot dog, the greatest burger, and you can be recognized for so many different things, not only as a chef, but become a successful business person doing it. So I think that to be the most successful, school and education helps you not only with knowing how to roast the chicken, I'm not just using that, but understanding the business, what to look for in the business, how to make the money, how to hold on to the money, how to spend the money correctly. So it's more than just the base technicals of cooking. You really have to under think like an entrepreneur, not necessarily just a chef. Yeah, I mean, when we went to school, was you had to take hotel accounting, accounting, beverage and inventory control stuff. Oh, why do I need this? Like my kids would say to me, oh, why do I need algebra in high school? Because <laughs> you're never going to use it, but you do use it. And learning those skills, those mathematical skills, and understanding business is super important to be successful. So you've been working in the restaurant field in New York City for a long time. Not too long ago, we spoke to Bobby Flay about opening a restaurant in Manhattan, and he described it as the most difficult place in the world to open a restaurant. He's never opened a restaurant in Singapore. That's probably one of the Singapore worse? Uh, Yeah, because the government is, you know, on top of you. But New York is pretty, very restrictive. Uh, it really comes from lots of people for years taking advantage of the system, like building people not following building permits correctly. These people that stole the gas downtown and like, isn't yeah. that was one of my favorites? Carnegie Restaurant. Yeah. Uh, who like steals gas? What are these people? It's not from? like millions of dollars. Right. I don't get it, man. And the risk is definitely not worth the reward. Right. That that's totally asymmetric. Let's talk about some of the technological advances that we see in modern kitchens. How has technology changed? Is it easier to run a big kitchen, or is it just an additional complication using technology? Uh, it's a little bit easier to run it. Uh, ba- you know, you from the computer systems that help you control inventory, watch purchasing, to just managing the kitchen, managing employees, and payroll. Now it used to be when I started. At the Plaza Hotel, my daily rate was $2.36 an hour. Mm-hmm. It's like $15 an hour. So you're really managing people on the half hour now. So technology of punching in, punching out, managing those people. But also the cooking techniques. That's too. what I was going to ask. There's so many new technological gadgets that you could use from, from the Suva days to down the road. Yeah. How does that help or does it just make it more challenging? It, uh, no, it, it does help out a lot, especially the com- combi ovens where they heat, they hold. You can use less employees in the product. You don't really lose anything in a product. If it was years ago, you would have to have a whole crew prepping and then putting it in an oven, taking it out, cooling it, then reheating it. There, There's technology now where you make items, you cook them to a certain temperature, you hold them at that temperature, and then you re- reheat them and serve them out. So especially for big banquets. We do a lot of banquets in Vegas. It's mm-hmm. been a big, huge help for us. But some of those like sous vide techniques, I think those some of that is come and gone. Uh-huh. I think that in the beginning when it came in, it was a cool idea and a lot of chefs used it. But I think it's gotten to the point where it's overused. I don't really like using it for red meats or mm-hmm. heavy meats. For chicken and certain vegetables, it makes them great. But you got to use some of those 
techniques or you have to really understand how to use those and what the outcome is going to be, not just to say, oh, it's sous vide and that's going to make it great. That's just not the, not the case. Let, let's talk a little bit about the cooking aspect of being in a restaurant. What does it take to make a great chef? Well, that's uh, uh, firstly you got to have passion for it. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to want to do it and, and struggle through learning, self-learning, uh, taking instruction, taking a lot of criticisms. But you also have to, like any artist or artisan, I like to say, forget about artist, but you have to learn all the techniques of proper roasting, proper grilling, proper sautéing, proper cutting, and a lot of. I think that's some of the things that get lost is really understanding all the basic techniques and knowing how to use those techniques and combine them. How does that differ from someone who is passionate about food at home and is a pretty good chef on their own? What does it take to transition to actually being a head chef in a restaurant? Uh, Cooking and being a chef to me are two completely different things. Mm -hmm. A chef has to be a good cook, but a great cook can't always be a great chef. It's... A chef is a person who runs the business, who runs the back of the house, runs the kitchen, has to know what all the other employees are doing in the kitchen, has to know, like, if you're on a saute station, everything that's in that saute station, what your mise en place is, what your recipes are, you're, cor- uh, you're executing those recipes correctly over and over again. It's at home, you're, you know, when I cook at home, I make grilled chicken. I'm making it for me and the kids and the family, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And when you're in a restaurant, you may you may be making hundreds of them. So if you come in at 11.30 on Tuesday, you want to come back at 11.30 on Friday and have the same exact experience. That takes a chef, somebody with skill who knows how to teach, who knows how to set that kitchen up correctly and make the teach those techniques and set up the mise en place correctly. So, so it's really a matter of organization and running a team more than just being a skilled Correct. cook. Huh. Very, very interesting. So when you're, you run a, a number of restaurants, how do you spot talent? How do you identify who's going to be a good chef either to hire or promote? It sounds like a really challenging thing talent, to do. Talent, you know, that is a tough one because there, there are people, like I said, who can cook. And then when you put them in a role of responsibility, just the mere fact of the anxiety of having to watch over other people, be responsible for other people. It takes a lot for for employees and people to get over. And one of the things is you'll see somebody who's working, he's a hard working they're a hard working person. They're consistent. They cook good. They they come up with specials. They come to you. They interact with you. You see how they move, how they just you know, there's a lot like watching a great basketball player, a great baseball player. Mm-hmm. They have a feel and a style and lots of moves and you and you pick up on that. And a lot of the, these people can once they get to the next level, just dealing with the anxiety is tough on them. And I think we try to teach them little by little of, okay, you're a great cook. You do a great job on your station. You really have done the, a lot of these things. Now let's teach you how to be a chef. Because I always say to guys, if you're a great, whatever, saute guy or great grill guy, you can only make so much money. You're not going to pay the saute man the same way you would pay the sous chef or the executive chef. So for you to grow and to not only make more money for yourself, but grow the business, and educate yourself and maybe do whatever you want mm-hmm. on your own, you have to overcome these challenges. So what are the differences and responsibilities for the sous chef versus, I assume, the executive chef? The buck stops with them. They're in yes. charge of everything, everything, from ordering to food quality to right. what the recipes are. The next uh, uh, lieutenant, the sous chef, what do they do? 
sous chefs do everything. The chef does as little as possible to <laughs> make sure that those guys are always working. And those uh, that used to be when I was a sous chef, I made sure the chef had very little to do. I mean, the chef, the executive chef has final say over the menu. The food, the he's the ultimate, they are the ultimate end of what the food quality is, what the dish looks like, tastes like when it's executed, and the viability of running that business. They're responsible for food costs. They're responsible for labor costs. We also make our, all our chefs responsible for the facility so it's taking care of the equipment managing that equipment because buying a thousand you know a blender a vitamix is 1200 bucks 1300 right. this oven's a 40 fifty thousand dollars these days it's not like you buy an oven for 600 bucks put it in and it works <laughs> everything's so expensive so you mentioned taste how do you two questions on taste how do you make sure a dish is consistent not only from meal to meal, but you have restaurants all over the country. How do you keep that consistent? And when you're designing a dish, are you trying to be as broadly focused as possible? Or, or are some dishes designed for a special niche niche audience and a special yeah, bunch uh, of... It's definitely a little bit of both. I'll answer the first question. When you get a recipe at home, you look at a recipe and it's a cup of this, a, a teaspoon of that. One of the things we try to do is really measure everything out so if someone's on a line and it's a spoon of this a spoon of that it'll always be the four ounce ladle it'll be so a it's two never ounce it's never a pinch or season to taste salt it's and precise. pepper i yeah. think salt and pepper and it, you really see it a lot you'll go to we have restaurants in new york where the food is seasoned here and people go out to las vegas and have the same dish oh it didn't taste the same it didn't but the taste of that clientele in vegas is totally different different age different demographics different demographics different, different level of salt different level mm -hmm. of pepper and then you go to los angeles and it's different again they everybody had all their you know mcdonald's does the same thing big corporations will see what people like to eat and how they like dishes seasoned or levels of seasoning and they'll they'll play up to that you have to adapt to the local absolutely taste. huh that, that's fascinating i never would have guessed that so you mentioned you cook at home for the kids what do you eat at home how different <laughs> is it from what you're cooking in the restaurant well first i have to do all the work myself when i'm at the restaurant there's always somebody can say get this get that clean this do I that i picture you <laughs> with like an assembly line with the kids yeah. peeling potatoes no, nothing no, like that no, at home not always but i you know Again, my, my wife and I eat, will eat this, and then my son will only eat certain dishes. My daughter, who's 13, will only eat certain dishes. So I try to make a little bit of everything for everybody. But now the summer is great, so it's all about barbecue. It's right. a salad, one vegetable, and then grilled meat and grilled fish. So that's why I like the summers. M makes life easy. Let, let's talk a little bit about life in the kitchen at a big shop like yours, um, what's it like being a chef? I would imagine the hours are pretty brutal. Hours are brutal, but I think that anybody who's in any profession has brutal hours. I don't, you know, talk to a lawyer or, or an electrician or somebody. They're always working lots of hours. They're working hard. Uh, the one thing about the restaurant is that you it never closes, right? Even if the you close for dinner or service ends at eleven o'clock, there's always somebody there is cleaning, is putting stuff away, uh, getting ready for the next day checking mise en place for the next day. The chef is always forecasting for tomorrow, looking at what he needs for what they need for tomorrow. Who's coming in uh, this day and age employees, employees calling out is always a big thing. Mm -hmm. So we're always jumping in and helping out on the line and moving. How do you getting, balance that with the personal life? If it's that demand? Oh, uh, <laughs> it's tough, but you know, one of the things that we do is that unless there's some, big circumstance where people have to work six days a week or work a double shift 
we really focus and emphasize that everybody takes their two days off. Everybody takes their vacation. When you take your vacation, you make sure you leave your phone home. Don't answer emails. Don't reply to email if you are answering those emails. So that downtime and off time is super important. I'm a strong believer in it, and I make sure all the, the whole team follows that rule. So I years many years ago, I worked in a kitchen um, as a short order chef and a waiter and a bartender in college. And I always noticed that some kitchens were really well-oiled machines. Everybody knew what they had to do, and it was pretty clear how things ran. How do you scale that up to uh, uh, an operation the size of yours? If you're doing $45 million in sales in just one location, this is really a a military-type operation, isn't it? It is a military-type operation, but we definitely take that same focus that you said. It's a small mom-and-pop, and we take every station and we break it down. So if there are seven stations in the kitchen... Each station is responsible for nine dishes or eight dishes. So you can really focus in on a sous chef will walk around and make sure they taste and monitor those. So as the food comes up, it's a huge pass. The line is about 25 feet. Mm -hmm. And everyone is putting up the dishes that they're responsible for that part of the menu. So if you compartmentalize all the food, it's not like you'll go there and make the salad, then run to the other side and make the noodles, then run to the other side and make the fish. Every single person has a set of responsibilities, the mise en place list and things that they have to be ready, and we monitor and check those things before service and during service. Mise en place meaning? Everything in its place. Mm-hmm. Sliced. It's An order comes in for pad thai. You're not slicing the radishes. You're not slicing the chicken. Everything is ready to go, and it's assembled. When, it, when the order comes You mentioned in. there are seven stations. What are the seven stations? Uh, there's gourmage, pastry, and tau would be dim sum, grill, hot apps, saute, and wok. Mm-hmm. And in the kitchen, and then there's a sushi station, which is a freestanding. And um, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions people have about how restaurants run? I, and I, I ask this having, as again, a person who goes out to eat a lot, I... And was a waiter. I'm always surprised at the comments people have for to to waiters. And it's like, oh, you've obviously never worked in a kitchen, otherwise you would never <laughs> ask. I wanted a big misconception is the chef is actually cooking every dish. Mm-hmm. That's oh my god, what did he do? No, and it's impossible for especially in a uh, restaurant of our size that the chef is cooking every dish, but he's he's creating every dish. He's coming up with it, and he's monitoring and working with the team as they produce it. And for us. Like someone came in one day and we had a, the lobster delivery came in and there were probably 400 pieces of lobster. And wow. somebody said, oh, my God, I thought you used frozen. Why would you think that we use frozen? <laughs> we get it delivered twice a week from Maine. You know, we take it, we break it down, we, we, we cook it and we get it ready for that service. And we do it fresh every single day. So there's a lot of misconceptions about how those things get done. What does it take to create a new dish? What is that process like? So usually one of us will come up with an idea. All I'll have an idea or the chef will have an idea. And then we, we kind of collaborate on it for if it's seasonal now, summer and spring is great. Lots of different products mm-hmm. come in and we'll test those out. And I'll make something or the chef will make something. And then we have a couple of corporate chefs who'll come in and then we'll, everybody will collaborate on that dish and add a seasoning or take something away and really try to maximize not only the flavors – but the execution of that dish. Where are we going to pick it up from? How is it going to get 
how is it going to look and taste exactly the same way we just made it? So that goes a lot into the thought of how to make a dish. Like, is it coming out of this station? Where are we holding the mise en place? What do we have to make ahead of time? What can we make at the moment? And how can we get that same experience over and over and over again to each guest that orders it? How, how often do you change up the menu? Uh, the bulk of the menu is kind of static because mm-hmm. there's hits, those big famous hits that everybody loves, like going to a Def Leppard concert. You got to hear those 10 songs. That's all that people right. want to hear. And then there's about a certain percentage that we swap in and out every year, but there's always specials. So once a year we change the menu and it's probably 10% of it that goes on and goes off based on seasonality and some things work and some things don't work. But specials are always ever changing. We run four or five specials a day. Let, let's talk a little bit about the business of running a restaurant. You have some really big operations in New York, in Las Vegas, in Los Angeles. I think I saw a list that three of the ten top-grossing restaurants were were Tao groups. How do you make sure that every customer experience will hold the seasoning aside for regional differences? <laughs> we call them guests, though. Every every guest gets the same experience no matter where the restaurant is. I think it for us it starts with finding the right employees, our people, mm-hmm. and teaching them hospitality. I think that you can... You have to find good people, right? You can teach anybody how to cook. You can teach anybody how to do any of the basic skills that you need for the restaurant business. But finding the right people, finding the good people who are into the hospitality business, who really want to give the best guest experience is the most important thing that we do, finding the right people. What what does it cost to open a, a new restaurant in a city like New York or Las Vegas these days? Uh, depends on the square foot. It's probably two thousand dollars a square foot, three thousand dollars a square foot. So that's several million dollars. Several million dollars, right? What? Why is the failure rate so high for restaurants? The I don't know if this is anecdotal, but I always hear ninety percent are gone within three years or some number like that. I think one of the things that just because you make the greatest souffle or the greatest Mm -hmm. steak, you have to. To me, for us anyway, the real estate is the most important part of the deal, right? Right. You have to have the right space in the right location at the right rent. Mm-hmm. And one, once all those, if you're paying exorbitant rent and you have a snowstorm, something happens, business, you know, like, so you have to plan for those things. You have to plan for when the business ebbs and flows mm-hmm. and the rent is constant. You pay the rent regardless of regardless of what happens. If people away in the Hamptons, doesn't matter. That's it. And I think one of the things that's one of the biggest misconceptions is someone. That's why going to school and understanding the business end of it is mm-hmm. super important. Understanding, projecting out. Hey, I can do forty thousand dollars a week in business. My rent factor is six percent. I can always make money. If I do forty thousand a week and I dip to twenty and my rent is 7 8%, I can still make money. But if my rent is double that and it's 9 10% and my rent factor goes up to 20%, you're, you're going to have to make yeah, – you're in trouble. So so real estate costs in, in a big city is is the most challenging thing. I think so, yeah. And More. what about overseas? I know you guys have places in Australia and you mentioned Singapore. Yeah. More or less the same concept or are you not dealing – like San Francisco and New York, the rents have to be pretty Crazy. insane. But yeah. in – in Sydney and in Singapore, we're in a hotel. So mm-hmm. we're in the Star in in Sydney and Marina Bay Sands. So we do have rent deals, but the hotel are our partners. So it's a base rent and a percentage rent. So it's manageable. So it doesn't matter. You're, you're someone It always manages. Is that yeah. true with most? So there's a sort of odd thing here in New York 
that there are a lot of big hotels that have restaurants inside. Some are fairly famous name brands, and some are lesser-known entities. Uh, is is that financing structure similar, or where the hotel is subsidizing the rent because they want the space there for guests, or how yeah, does I think work? each one is individual, but I, I think you find more and more now that the individual operator puts up very little of their own cash, and the base build or the hotel will finance the whole project. Mm-hmm. They'll be your partner, and you'll get less of a percentage on the front end and less of a percentage on the back end, but they'll finance the whole project for you. So that becomes financially attractive. There's little risk when you're when little you're risk. into that. Less risk. There's always risk of you know getting the employees not making money, signing to a deal that may not be as lucrative as you want, and mm-hmm. doing all this work and then finding out three percent of 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 the net is nothing. <laughs> is it, so why is it that so many people seem to be attracted to investing in restaurants? Is it just a hobbyist thing? Yeah, it's an like ego a thing? movie or a or Broadway show, right? right? It's like the worst super. investments in the world. Oh, uh, don't go that far. We're looking for money. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, it is Broadway shows and yeah. movies oh, yeah, are Broadway, the worst. Yeah. In the- well, I mean, it's super sexy, right? And it's right. it's action and it's people and it's the the uh, aphrodisiac of opening a restaurant is mm-hmm. great, man. People come in, they see you, and people who understand it for the business are very are smart about investing, and. I don't know. It looks easy to everybody. I guess the restaurant, but oh, you make some. How hard great. is it? You cook some food, food put you throw it out, and right? And it's done. Wow! But that's, Profit <laughs> machine. That's it. Oh my God! They're charging twenty-seven dollars for a chicken. I go to the store and it's five dollars. How is that possible? The you, rest you gotta, is all profit. Yeah, that's, you, that. it's so not true. But that's what people think. <laughs> so, if you had to decide the most important job in the restaurant, not counting the chef, who who do you assign that task to? Well, you know, I always say that. Every single person in that restaurant matters, from the person who sweeps outside and receives the delivery and puts it away. I think that every single person in that chain has a a very important part to play in a guest experience coming in, coming up to a restaurant that's dirty on the outside. You know, you want it clean, you want it sharp. Every single job in a restaurant is important. I have to totally agree with you. We had a very nice meal the other day at a very nice restaurant I won't mention, and the bus boys, I don't know if they were trying to break the dishes, but they were just, yeah. and it was just one of those little things that I noticed that, gee, for a really nice restaurant, they should teach these guys not to slam um, everything down. It should be a more gentle, because yeah, half mean, the restaurant's head whipped around every time, and that happened throughout. I was shocked. And, people, and it takes away from the experience. Like, yeah. But is the bus boy important? Yeah, sure. That person is very important. From the same way you walk in and the maitre d' or the host greets you and says hello, and then the server comes over and takes your order, and the chef and the the person who received those goods, did they take care of them? Did they put them away the right way so the food doesn't spoil? Everything, and it's every single thing matters. Everything. It does. It, it has a big impact on the experience. Um, you have any thoughts on this tipping or, or not movement that seems uh, to be gaining steam? A, you know, it's a, it's. You know, it's difficult because tipping in upstate New York or smaller counties where it's super valuable to the employee. When an employee or waiter gets, server gets stiffed in one of those, they're not making any money. In mm-hmm. New York, it's different. There's the scale of people coming in, the amount of business that we do. So paying a server $13, $14 an hour is very tough on the restaurants in right. New York. And it, I believe in the end it's it's – changing the face of the restaurant business in New York City and certain restaurants with servers will be elite 
kind of high-end restaurant because most people won't be able to afford it. I mean, do, like, do you they, think we're better off just keeping tipping as it is and not messing? I with do. That? Yeah, I, I could totally see that. So, when you want to go out for fun, what sort of what are you looking in in a restaurant when you're dining out? So, uh, I have different. If we go out to eat as a team, we go to look to see an experience. Who Who's doing something in Asian food? Who's doing something in Italian food? Are the dishes interesting? If I'm going out with my family, it's someplace where my kids can destroy and like have a good time, and I don't have to worry about them, and just have a nice glass of wine and relax. So it's all about what we're trying to do and what we're trying to accomplish. We'll go out and as a team, and we'll, we went to that uh, Korean steakhouse, Kot, and mm-hmm. so 10 of us went out. We ordered everything on the menu. We tried everything. Literally everything Literally, on the menu. Yeah. How many, 10 people, just yeah, bring just, us what, yeah, two of each. Like, I'll always go like, there's a green salad. We don't want that, but bring everything else. <laughs> do, do people recognize you when you go out? Do you ever, um, have other people in the restaurant industry say, oh, Some comes people, Ralph? I mean, because, no, nobody ever says that. I try to be as incognito as possible, not that anybody would know me. But, you know, the restaurant business is very incestuous in the city. Mm-hmm. So service could have, there was a bartender there and a server that worked for us in town. So mm-hmm. they knew us automatically. So, Does that mean you get better? Service or worse? Oh, it depends service. on it. What the, <laughs> depends <laughs> whether they had a good time at town or not. I don't. I don't know. But so when you are looking at a restaurant, what what would it take to get you to invest in a restaurant that wasn't part of your group? What would you be looking for? I know you probably are precluded from doing that, but I am precluded. But that. if you were thinking about that, like what what sort of things catch your eye as a potential investor? One of the things the concept what the concept is and what it's driven by. Is it driven by a steakhouse? Is it a concept that goes across all different genres? Is it a businessman restaurant or is it specific to a ethnic cuisine? What's the location? And what what does the P&L say? What do the multiples say? Mm-hmm. Are they Do they have the right scale? Are you charging enough? So if it's only 60 seats and people say, well, we can do 3 million a year. 3 million a year, it's 60 seats. How much money are you going to make off that investment? Right. If you leave you, if you took that half a million dollars and left it in a bank and made two percent on a CD, you would make more money, mm-hmm. and it's safer. You have to have the right size restaurant with the right concept and the right location and enough scale to make that investment worth it. So most of what I see with the Tao Group, there's there's Tao, the whole run of Asian mm-hmm. restaurants. Um, what do you do in terms of steak and in terms of Italian? We do Lavo, which is an Italian mm-hmm. steakhouse. We have one in New York, one in Las Vegas, one in Singapore. Mm-hmm. So that kind of encompasses the Ita- Italian-American kind of food from New York. New York neighborhood food with steak. Mm-hmm. And we have Legacy, which is a seafood restaurant in the Moxie Hotel. Tao, Beauty in Essex, Vandal. So it's lots of different concepts. But Tao is definitely our biggest concept that we have, and it's... The most famous. For and sure. um, when you when you go out to restaurants in Manhattan, is part of the back of your head always running those numbers? Like not too seeing long what ago, they're doing first, seeing yeah. what ideas I could steal and take it, make our own. Because mm-hmm. you know you're always looking to improve yourself. Anyone who says we do everything perfect and we do everything great and we do the best food, the best guest experience is just fooling themselves. You're always looking where I'm always looking for that edge and seeing what people are doing. Is there any innovation? And to see what kind of business they're doing and in a location is it sustainable is it is it going to be a threat is it going to be something who or part of that concept that maybe there is something there and they can make something of it I don't, you know you're always thinking when you're looking and seeing what's going on 
Interesting. Can you and see where they're investing the money in? Right? Did they spend money on five hundred dollars in flowers and no money on linen? Linen is that really where you want to go? Huh. So I'm interesting. Going. Can you stick around a little bit? Absolutely. I have some more questions for you. We have been speaking with Ralph Scamadella. He is chef and partner at the Tau Group. Uh, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things fine dining. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column on bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Ralph, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I find this topic absolutely fascinating, not only because I, I like to cook a little bit and I certainly like to eat, um, but wherever I go, I'm, I'm burdened with that mathematical knowledge of looking around and saying, this is a really good restaurant, but how the hell are they making any money if a Friday night this place is half empty? The food is great. Where is everybody? Do you ever have experiences like Absolutely, that? Absolutely, yeah. Thank you. I'm having a great time doing a show also, and it's great. Uh, we, you know, when you you not only look for the food experience, but you always look for the business experience mm-hmm. of like what's going on, what are they doing, why aren't they busy, why are they busy? It's lots of you know people will look at Tao and say, oh my God, they're so busy. Let's open up right next door, and they don't because is it the business in the areas? Well, I think Tao is a special. It is definitely it's a destination. A, it's right? a destination. It's, it's like a special experience. No it's, one's walking by and saying, oh, let's pop in for a, a snack. No, everyone's here. going there, and it's an, a completely immersive experience, right? It's it looks great. It, it, the food is good. The service is great, but the the feel and the the vibe of the place. It's it's all about going out and having the experience. So there's a restaurant group on Long Island, I won't mention their name, and they just opened up this immense restaurant, Mediterranean restaurant, of which there are a number of uh, on Long Island. Um, uh, Kima is one, Lamani is another one, and so a third one, this giant place, MP Taverner is a third one, but this giant place opened up, and we walk in, and it's just gorgeous, it's spectacular. And we sit down for dinner after making reservations. We have family members in from out of town. And I'm shocked. Everything is mediocre. And I, I know the restaurant group. The rest of the restaurants are actually really good. It looks like they put in $5 million building this place. Mm. So I'm leading up to the question. When a restaurant opens up, how long does it have to kind of adjust the dials and trim the sails and get it right? My wife you know is like, we're done with that. We don't have to go back <laughs> yeah. there. I'm like, I, I think you got to give it a couple of times. You know, right. people will say six months if the service is really, really good and the food's okay. People will give it a second chance. Mm-hmm. If the service is really bad and the food is okay, people won't give the restaurant a second chance. Really, I think you got to. The food comes second to the service. Food comes second to the service. That's I think interesting. In, in, in initial reactions to pe- yeah. people coming in and saying, I think you, you, sometimes it could take three months, depending depending upon how far they're reaching, right? What right. kind of cuisine it is. Is it real simple cuisine and they're executing it poorly? Or is it real simple cuisine and they're buying poor ingredients? I mean, you could, if you go out a lot and you're somebody like you who knows the difference, you can mm-hmm. tell the difference between a really good steak and a real bad steak. For sure. And a, Steak is the easiest yeah, thing to Yeah, a piece tell. of fish or the quality of the produce. And you're saying, here, they built this restaurant, it's great, and they're using crummy tomatoes and they're using 
really poor fish and the steak quality isn't good, you, you know that they're cutting back on the most important thing. I think that's one thing that we never do. You may like or not like, but we buy the best ingredients and let them speak for themselves because people will always be able to tell that apart. I'll give a restaurant two or three times before I write it off. Really? Yeah. So I'm I'm 2X and then you're you're done. And I I always notice a favored restaurant, the food will be really at a high level for a long time and then it starts to falter. And you always wonder, is this an aberrational meal or is this the beginning of the end? Because all restaurants seem to have a natural lifespan with a hand. You know, you go to Smith & Walensky any day of the week and you know you're going to get a good steak and they've been there for a million years. But that sort of longevity really seems to be the exception, isn't it? In this day and age, yeah. I think one of the things is not only the the location and the rent, which kind of squeezes things down, but... I think they own their buildings, so that might make them uh, a little more unique. But I think that most places, when they're in trouble, instead of buying a prime steak, that's... I mean, we pay $21 a pound for prime steak. We pay. So what does that translate to? $50 a steak? Right. I think people will buy lesser quality ingredients to make up the difference in payroll, make up the difference in profitability. And I think the, once you start doing that, the guests will notice that right. immediately. Especially if you go there three times a week or once a month and all of a sudden you're eating the same thing and you know it's different. Right. Let's say maybe it's an off night. The next time you go you're and out. it's bad, that's it. All right? Everybody has an off night. So, Willie so- Mays. <laughs> So, off days. <laughs> yeah, it's it, there's one thing yeah. when it's when it's a one-off, then when it's really that that's, that's slow the thing circle. about reviewers. They'll come in and if they do it over a two-week span or a month span, that's different. Coming in on one time when a place is busy and maybe just getting a bad experience. How do you how do you judge any business? You know, it's not like it's a movie where it's been seen 150 times and everyone's vetted it. You're, you're having somebody make the meal. Right. You don't know what happens in the kitchen. Are there bad experiences? Sure. Absolutely. But you have to, it's one of those things where you have to give it three or four tries before you actually, or go to a couple of dinners and say, you know, it really from beginning to end is a bad experience or from beginning to end, it's a good experience. So so let's talk about reviews a little bit. Um, I think Pandora's in, box, man. In, so in no gen- setting myself up to get shot. In <laughs> general, I think the better reviewers, and let's, let's, include the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, New York Magazine, Time Out, will go at least 2x. But here's the bigger question. I remember back in the day, a review in in a major paper, and I, I would say the Times still has this power. That's it. That restaurant is jammed for months, and then it starts to attenuate. But it's not the same sort of hammer it was 20 years ago. No, not when Mimi Sheridan or Brian right. um, Miller or one of those big reviewers and John Marini when they would come in that would make or break it now uh, you take the subway and there's 500 reviewers <laughs> everybody's right. a everybody's a Yelp guy everybody's a something well Yelp They're, is terrible forget Yelp yeah. reviews <laughs> and at one point in time Z- Zagat's was great yeah. I think Google kind of took yeah. took the, the well, power Google out of them Google is looking to drive advertising sales right. right can't say something bad about somebody who could possibly advertise with you and that's what Yelp does it, uh, you know, I guess they're, to me, a lot of those outrageous reviews are just trying to drive traffic to the site, right? Mm-hmm. So you get on Eater and those guys and they just, ham- they hammer us like to no end. And it, is it possible to get some bad meals? Yes. Is it possible that everybody does a great job but us? Impossible. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't be where we are right. and who we are and with the, the su- reputation. Right. The success speaks for yeah, itself. They hammer us, but. They're trying to drive. If you went and said something bad about 
some small Italian restaurant or some small Asian restaurant, would anybody care? No. But if you say something bad about Tao or say something good about Tao, it drives traffic. Mm-hmm. That's all what it's about. Clicks. What, what about, speaking of clicks, what about Instagram and people photographing dishes? Does How significant has that become? Does that affect presentation? Are people aware at of, of that subsector of diners who want to take yes, a photograph every, of everything? everything is the Instagram moment. Right. Everything. I mean, a lot of, some of what we do is geared towards the Instagram moment. But I always say if people will take pictures of something that's great and Instagram it, that's mm-hmm. great. But a lot of the stuff you see on Instagram is almost inedible, right? They right. put stuff on the it. The giant just, towers. Yeah, of, it makes no sense, man. Right. What are you going to eat? Like something that's got 5,000 ingredients with cheese poured over it. Right. Who eats that? Nobody. Nobody. So <laughs> so you're, you will put you as uh, on the fence with uh, Instagram. Oh, no, I like Instagram. I think it, for me, it saves me probably five 6,000 calories a day. Right? You don't have to go out and eat. You can look at a picture of it and kind of figure out what's in it you can pick up an idea and a description uh-huh. of the dishes there I, really? I personally like instagram i just think that for it to what the average person likes on instagram mm-hmm. doesn't really translate to what a good meal would be really uh, i was reading not too long ago that there are some specialty ice cream makers out of brooklyn who have redesigned their labels to make them more Instagram friendly. People yeah. are literally snapping photos in the frozen food aisle of your favorite that's supermarket. That's great. No, I think that that's, but that's one Smart. thing about the restaurant business now. There is no one path to success, right? Mm-hmm. A guy can come up with something, Instagram it, and Instagram like um, Black Tap. I mean, Instagram made them. Really? Those those shakes and Instagramming those shakes, and, and they're great. I mean, I, they're, it's unbelievable. They do a great product, but they, they were struggling in the beginning, and they hooked on to Instagram, and Instagram helped promote their business. So when you go out to eat, tell us some restaurants you like. Where do you go in New York? Where do you go in that are not Tao group restaurants? Where do you go in Los Angeles? I try not to go anywhere else. You know, I try to conserve as many. You know, my favorite place in L.A. is Republic. I don't know if you've been there. Nope. It's the old La Brea Bakery. The food is really good. The chef is great, and it's seasonal, and it's fresh, and it's non-threatening i like where people don't have to think so much when they're eating and just order something and it's the food is good the service is good and the ingredients are really fresh and well made non-threatening tell us about some other memorable uh meals you've had anywhere in the country anywhere in the world yeah well one of the play hong kong is one of one of the dishes that we have on a towel is a snapper in the sand and we had it in a place in hong kong and this guy with the server was unbelievable he had like these big uh fishing boots on white fishing boots and we went over picked the fish out he was like dancing in the food and the dish was like unbelievable so i went into the kitchen and there were three cooks on a walk and i just was trying to talk to them i'm Letting me you just walked them. yourself into just a kitchen. Right in. And Nobody they, said they, anything. They, nah, I don't know. Nobody ever stops you. I don't know. <laughs> you look like you belong in there. You I look just like I belong, in. right? You could put on a chef coat and pretty much go anywhere. But right? people say nobody stops. Just, you. Nobody stops you. <laughs> well, right into the White House if you want. And uh, so they weren't really saying anything. And I went down a block. I bought a, a case of beer. I brought it into the kitchen. Gave each guy like four or five beers, and they taught me how to make this dish right there. I was like, that was a great experience. Cheapest acquisition cost ever. Yeah. That, that that's it, amazing. <laughs> Wait, how about in the United States? What other meals have you had that are memorable? You don't strike me as a uh, gastronomic sort of. No, I, you know, I look at food and I say to myself, what what 
some of those long meals where you go to uh, those tasting dinners, I, mm-hmm. I don't have the patience to sit through one of those. I, I don't knock anybody's food. I Food in a restaurant business on any level, from the guy who sells the halal guy in the street outside mm-hmm. to, to you know, per se. It's all hard work getting people to come in, right. guests to buy the stuff. But for me, I don't like sitting there for four hours and eating and I drinking and it's, you know, seven courses paired with a wine. If I get a good bottle, one cocktail and a really good bottle of wine with dinner, I'll always pick a wine that'll go well with an appetizer and an entree, mm-hmm. seven different wines. By by the time you're on your seventh course with the seventh wine, <laughs> right. you're either drunk or tired. Everything kind of tastes the same and it doesn't, to me, it doesn't make any sense. Well, I was in Barcelona in September and we went to this one, three Michelin star rated restaurant. I'm not exaggerating when it was... 20 courses they were all tiny little things yeah. but even still after the 10th it's like all right i'm good wait we're only halfway and the wine just kept flowing it was uh so it was a lot barcelona is some of the best food in the world it, it was amazing but last time we went to japan we went to four three-star michelin restaurants each one was worse than the next just going on just for, going so you go to a sushi forever. place do you are you picking food out or you just do omakase and say to the chef omakase yeah just you know, give me you, what you got yeah give me what you got and you're happy with that what do you like for sushi here in new york uh we went to netta but i you know i like to um sushi by gary he's always mm-hmm. good man he always does a good job simple it's fast it's clean uh sushi seki on 23rd is very good also mm-hmm uh, tell us what else. What about Italian? What do you do when you want to go out for Italian and not cook always cook yourself? at home? You know, there's some really true? good. Re- yeah, cook at home, but there's some really. I live on Staten Island, and some really mm-hmm. good restaurants on Staten Island. Just really? Italian, Italian American. There's a place on New Dorp Lane, Pizza Giove. That the pizza is great. The Italian food is great. Two guys from Italy in a small place, but they do a great job. What do you think of concepts like quality meats, quality Italian, any of that run? There's some some pretty good. They steak do some out good. There. Yeah, they yeah. do some pretty. They do a good job. I don't like knocking anybody because uh. uh, I get we get knocked all the time. But I I know what it takes to get it done. So I always go out for the experience and uh, fun. What about Chinatown? You ever go to Flushing and work your way you through? No, um, I'm born and raised in Brooklyn and. When I do go back to Brooklyn, at the 7th Avenue, 8th Avenue in Brooklyn has a great Chinatown. So mm-hmm. I used to go to Queens to see the Mets play, but since they're so bad, I don't go out to Queens anymore. <laughs> what are they, 0 for 18? It's not so terrible. Bad, they, they finally won. Heartbreaking. But Brooklyn has great Chinese food, and so does Staten Island. There's some really good Chinese restaurants. So I'll go to Brooklyn and when I want to get my Chinese Chinatown fix. Um, and then the last restaurant question I... I uh, wanted to ask is what do you do when a dish comes out and you just don't like it? Send it back. Well, if something is up in the past and it's not right, it doesn't look right, it to send it right back to the cook and send it. The first thing I'll send it back and then turn around and yell at the sous chef and make them to go back there and make it with them. So no hesitation. I know no people hesitation. who basically are are very. Uh, Fearful, maybe that's right. I'm with you. I, if something is overcooked, back Send it, it back. goes. Which part of rare was confusing to you yeah. on a steak? This is somebody else's shoe. Not that I ever say that to the yeah. uh, waiter. But You're everybody makes mistakes, right? Hey, so, this I think I got the wrong wrong steak. I ordered it rare. This is medium well. Can can I get yeah. a rare steak? But there are a lot of people that really seem to be hesitant to send stuff back. Oh. Uh, what you mean in the kitchen or as a diner? Or no, as, as a, a diner. Di- as a diner, unless it's really, really bad, it depends on like if we're with the crew of people, we'll mm-hmm. send stuff back if it's not right. If I'm with my family, it's pretty, you know, I'll order 
stuff that I know is safe. Like when you go out to eat, people say if you go, if you go somewhere, what do you order? My first instinct is always to order something safe, especially with a big group of people because you don't know. And mm-hmm. like, so, what do you mean by safe? Like just a piece of grilled chicken or nothing too not on the fancy end of the menu. Not on the fancier end of the menu. So simple and and their bread and butter because you know it'll Correct. be done yeah, it'll well. It'll be a good meal. It'll be a safe experience. But if I'm going out for a dining experience, it's mm-hmm. totally different. If I'm going out, we're going out with friends, and we're hanging out, we're partying. It's always a safe experience. Does does being in the business ruin that that experience? People think for you a that because when you eat with a bunch of people, everybody's looking at you like, "What? What does he say? What is he?" I was like, "No, it's I just try Gotta to eat. Yeah, just eat, man. I I I really really enjoy eating. <laughs> so. That and you're very part, trim. How do you manage to keep I don't the know, calories very, off? Just, uh, first, you got to exercise. Two, yeah. you got to make smart decisions about what to eat and when to eat. When we would work on dishes or work on our menus, we're opening Tao Chicago very soon. Right. So that's coming in September. And right now, we're working on dishes. So we, w- I would take four or five bites, six bites, seven bites, eat half the dish. And I don't like, now it's one or two bites. Just to get test how it's doing. Move and then on, on to the, the next, next one. It's really about how many calories you consume in a day let's um that's really quite interesting let let's jump to our favorite questions i want to see uh okay. see how how you run down these relative to to what is some this of the speed round? do this is the speed <laughs> round absolutely so what do you think is the most por- important thing that people don't know about your background important thing that they don't know about my background it's a loaded question at that it, you know i um i was just a, regular guy born and raised in Brooklyn and just worked my way up and worked hard that I think that when people see success or you're working in a restaurant oh he's got this oh he does that and I think no one gets anywhere without working hard and paying your dues and I definitely paid my dues over and over overpaid my dues I'm waiting for that check to come back to the <laughs> refund check um, who were some of your early mentors you mentioned the one chef that took a liking to you when you were young yeah I, I don't know if he's still alive he was an old Sicilian guy but I worked in a restaurant called La Cine mm-hmm. many years ago a chef there was a chef named Jean-Yves Piquet an old French guy who was really back in the day that was one of the few four star restaurants in New York from the New York Times when mm-hmm. it really really was something and he was a strict disciplinarian. He was the guy who really taught, made me understand what running the kitchen was and how everyone should look and behave and perform. And it was all about dressing right, and looking right. And you had to wear the white hat and the neckerchief and stand there and just, those were the days where you got screamed at from the minute you opened the door to the minute you went home, man. You were just like hammered every minute of every day. And, um, what chefs influenced your approach to cooking? Who did you who did you think uh, about? Who affected the sort of in dishes the, you created? In create? the early eighties, I worked with uh, when there was a restaurant hotel on the west on the east side, the Westbury Hotel. And mm-hmm. It was a restaurant called Apollo, and Roger Verge was the consulting chef. But Daniel Ballou and his crew came from Lyon, and those guys with those that team was one of the really first people who exposed me to a different world of how French food was and the seasonality of it. And back in French restaurants were always like, this is it. This is These are the dishes. Duck all orange in the middle of the summer, in the middle of the winter. They were more seasonal food and really taking a farm approach way, way back when. Long before farm to table. Yeah, became, way before. Uh, 
I don't want to trendy. admit it in the 80s, though. I was only like two years old, though. When I was like <laughs> so you mentioned you don't have time to read books. You're so busy uh, at the restaurant. So what do you do for fun? What do you do to, to keep entertained? Well, now it's the summer, so I like to hang out in the backyard and, and have a nice glass of wine and go in the pool. And But I like enjoy playing with my kids and do a lot of charity work and helping others. It really gives me a good sense. And we, Tau Group and Tau Cares, the, we're involved in a lot of different charities. So. Tau Cares. That's yes. the, the charity arm in, of... Yes. And what sort of what sort of groups do you guys like to work with? Uh, we big in uh, the uh, breast cancer research and breast cancer walks. We do a lot of that. Um, I'm actually uh, my charity and the part of Tau Cares... I'm on the chairman of the board of Eden 2, which is a school and a facility for people on the autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. So I do that work, and we have another charity called Pop Earth is works with people on the autism spectrum. So I do a lot of that work. And um, since you joined the restaurant industry, what has changed, and is this for the better or for the worse? Uh, every single thing has changed, like now getting rid of plastic straws. I think a lot of it is for the better, <laughs> right. for sure, especially the way employees are treated. I think back in the day you could, you know, get yelled at, smacked, hit, and all of it was wrong. It's almost like, you know, the trail of, a, of an abusive parent. Mm-hmm. You abuse the kid, the kid grows up to be an abusive parent, and that mm-hmm. was really what was learned, yelling and screaming. A Cycle lot of had that, to be broken? Yeah, I think it definitely had to be broken. Is it is it better today? The restaurant industry has had a little bit of its own Me Too movement Yeah, I think well. it's way, way better today. People who respect each other, respect, I hate to use that term, diversity, but mm-hmm. women in the workplace and just different people in the workplace and the way you treat people and treat people with respect and treat yourself with respect so you can treat other people with respect. Makes a lot of sense. Um, what is it that has you most excited about the industry today? Uh, it's dynamic. It's ever-changing. Uh, maybe I've said it a couple of times, but the, the way to make money and the way to get your point across and get your dish across has changed so much. And it's just, you could come up with something that's the greatest bow bun and make a fortune. And, and people who have, the food truck revolution, I think changed the way a lot of people think about restaurants. So you can go to a, a truck and have a great meal. You can go mm-hmm. down a road. like, And it's everywhere, right? You go to Madison Square Garden and the food stands are great. Mm-hmm. You go to- Huge improvement from yeah, what it was. Yankee Stadium or City Field. I don't know if anybody goes to City Field. I don't know. I love them much, but may, it may <laughs> be the best food of all the yeah. major um, major where league you can stadiums. Go. You can go and um, where we went to Fenway Park a couple of years ago, and the steakhouse in there was great. It was a great experience, and those are the different things where you can get great meals anywhere now. Not not just a high end, not just restaurant. a high end restaurant. Tell us about a time you failed and what you well, learned from the experience. I always say I never failed. I failed like, you know, as restaurants we learned, you know, we had a restaurant up on the Upper East Side, Arlington Club, that the food was great, but it was just bad location. It was, we learned a lot to really be more careful about the locations that we picked and just to, sometimes you have to know when to get out, right? Mm-hmm. I think that we let that, that's, one of the most important things, if you listen, bus, any business is risk, right? Mm-hmm. So some things work, some things don't work. But if it's not working, you've tried everything, let it go and move on. What, why do you say it was a bad location? I, I'm just reminded. I just think that, yeah. I'm reminded of the Seinfeld with the black hole restaurant that yeah. always died and never, never seemed it's to just make it. It's just that back. for some reason it just happens that way. I don't know why. That, that part of 
It's in front of a bus stop. All, mm-hmm. It was like all crazy little things that was successful, and we took it thinking that we could make it work. And it, listen, we had a great partners and great food, and just didn't go. Didn't go. So someone's a millennial and wants to become a chef or or enter the restaurant business. What sort of advice would you give them? Takes if, time. Yeah, they all think it's. I mean, everybody wants instant gratification. Oh, I went to school. I worked for this chef for two, a year. I worked for that chef for a year. I'm ready to be a chef. And mm-hmm. It's just not the case. It's a long process. And our final question, what is it that you know about the restaurant business today that you wish you knew 25 years ago? It's very difficult to make money. <laughs> it's very really? difficult, yeah. I think that um, everyone, the, the perception of people... Not, I didn't actually do it for the money. I did it because I just loved it and wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't take the approach of, hey, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make a million dollars. I'm going to make five million dollars. I'm going to make ten. I'm gonna, just did it because it's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I took that approach of going in and just working and working and working, figure that if I could just work hard, the opportunities will come. And I don't know. I would have studied harder in school, though. <laughs> That's for sure. I would have paid atten- more attention in college. Very, very good. Uh, this has been fascinating stuff. We have been speaking with Ralph Scamadella. He is chef and partner at the Tao Group, which runs uh, the most uh, highest grossing restaurant in America, as well as three of the 10 top grossing independent restaurants and a slew of other highly regarded and well-reviewed restaurants. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, uh, Bloomberg.com, wherever finer podcasts are sold. And you could see the rest of our 200 previous such conversations. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together these conversations each week. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Medina Parwana is our producer slash audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.